0: Welcome to Salt Church. Uh, If we haven't met yet, my name is Drake. I am the director for our college ministry, The Salt Company. Excited that you guys are joining us this morning. If you want to be proactive, you can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be camped out in our time together. And uh, while you turn there, about two years ago, I got married to my wonderful bride, Brittany. Uh, I completely outkicked my coverage with landing her. She is way out of my league. And uh, I got her to the altar as quickly as I possibly could. Uh, I even told my best friend who was officiating our wedding to speed up the ceremony so that she couldn't back out. Um, But it's been a great two years for us. Uh, In fact, we have a bun in the oven, a baby on the way due in May which is exciting for us. Uh, We're really excited for the season. Tatum Crew. Tatum Crew Daniels, that's going to be, that is his name. Uh, And please do not text me about how much sleep we are about to lose. I'm already scared to death uh, for that. Um, But hey, one thing that happens when you get married, and uh, married couples in the room, you'll, you'll understand this. If you're single or in a relationship, you'll come face to face with this reality. And it's not profound, but it's true, is that men and women are different. And not just like physically, I mean like I mean like holistically, right? And so girls in the room, uh, if, if and when you get married, your bed with the fresh seats and the like little fluffy things and the thirty pillows is gonna be met with a dude who is smelly and hairy and who snores and who hasn't changed his sheets in three years, okay? And you're gonna share your emotions with him and he's gonna be confused. And so, guys, if, if you think that you're going to come home one day and just sit on the couch watching TV with a bag of chips, forget it, brother, because that ain't happening, all right? Because what's going to happen, you're going to go and sit on the couch and she's going to come sit right next to you and she's going to say, hey, how was your day? And a sweeping good isn't going to cover it anymore, all right? She's going to want details, 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 and she's going to want to give you details. And so, you're going to have to sit and listen, and process, and affirm, and say things like, yeah, that, that would hurt my feelings too, or oh my gosh, no, I, I didn't realize that. And you're going to actually have to engage at that level, and then she's going to start crying, and you won't know why or how to fix it. <laughs> and guys, you'll suddenly, you won't be able to just to watch SportsCenter all day long, right? Because HGTV is going to rule the household, okay? And at first, you're going to be bored, but about 10 episodes in, You're going to wonder why there isn't more natural light in the kitchen, why there isn't shiplap up on the wall, how some fresh plants can actually go a long way in refreshing the room, right? So many things change once you get married. And the thing that I came head on with in a marriage is the fact that my wife actually loved me enough to say, Drake, you need to go to the doctor. Because, man, guys in the room, maybe you can understand, but it had been a while since I had been to the doctor, right? Right? Let's be honest, There had been a few Summer Olympics, but I like despise the doctor, okay? Uh, I do not like the doctor, not the people, um, just the idea. I hate that they prick you and prod you and poke you, that they invade your personal space, tell you to cough, and then they just leave you in a room for like 30 minutes in this sterile room all the while you're just contemplating life knowing that at any second they might come back to you and say, okay, we ran some tests. And I'm going to need you to sit down because it does not look good. we got some bad news for you. Okay, and here's the deal. I know that if that were the case, like as much as I dislike the doctor, that if the doctor came back to me and said, Drake, we have some bad news for you, that it would be from a place of love, right? Like it would be hateful if a doctor ran some tests, realized there was something deeply wrong inside of me, and then came back in and just said... You know what I I just don't want to tell him you know like I don't want to ruin his day so I'm actually just going to hold back that information that that would be anti-love like the worst thing that a doctor could do would be to hold back the bad news for fear of bringing up an offense a good doctor knows and a good doctor operates under the premise that until we can understand the bad news we can't properly uh, see the good news we can't we can't actually fix the problem and so the reality is, this bad news of the diagnosis when you go to the doctor is actually the first step to healing. And the reason I start with all that today is because that's actually where we find ourselves in the study of the book of Romans. You see, we have had three weeks in the book of Romans already where we've been exploring who Paul is and his desire to, to tell everyone of the gospel. And it all culminates in the, the, the thesis statement, the thesis verse of Romans, Romans 1.16. That it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who would believe. And today, we shift into a new section in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18 begins a new section that will go all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, where the primary topic is sin and our need for salvation. Where Paul is going to act as sort of this doctor and he's going to come into our room and hold up the spiritual MRI to show the world and everyone in it that we are spiritually sick and broken and without hope. It's like Paul is about to come into this room today and say, hey, I need you guys to sit down because I have some bad news. And that's what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Romans 1. It's bad news. Today we're going to be focusing on like a sort of pagan idolatry. That's going to be the main focus that we see. Romans 2, also bad news because we see that religion and moralism and legalism cannot save you. And then in Romans 3, it's the ultimate bad news this nail in the coffin, this staggering indictment that there is no one righteous in the world, not one, and that the world is silent before God in judgment. And so in order for Paul to lay out the incredible good news of the gospel later on in Romans, he is about to convince every single person of their guilty status before a holy God. Welcome to church, baby. Welcome to church. But before you tune out, it's this idea that only when you understand that you're sick will you fully understand that you need healing. Or in other words, and don't miss this, if you see the darkness and the depths of your sin and you come to fully understand that, you're going to see the beauty and the grace of Jesus like you've never seen it before. Good news becomes good news when it invades dark spaces. And so here's what I want you guys to see as as you leave the room. If you could just get one thing today, it's this. is that you need to fully realize the bad news to fully realize the good news and live out that good news. You need to fully realize the bad news before you can fully appreciate and live out the good news. Because if you realize that you have absolutely nothing to give to God, then it makes the good news of the gospel that we can enter into his kingdom not just good news, but shocking news. And in this short section, Paul is going to lay out the bad news for us where he shows us our guilty status before a holy God by showing us two primary things. That's suppressing the truth of God and turning to idols over God. Suppressing the truth of God and turning to idols over God. And so strap in. Buckle up, here we go, Romans 1 verse 18, Romans 1 18. It says, "For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And so the wrath of God This wrath of God is being revealed. Now, if you remember back to last week, we saw that it was actually the righteousness of God that was being revealed. That God is righteous. He is just. He is good. And he always does what is right compared to us as sinners. And what happened on the cross is what's known as the great exchange. Where Jesus took on all of your imperfections and in turn all of Jesus' righteousness was credited to you. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins or imperfections. He actually sees the perfect life of his son Jesus so he can pour out all of his favor and all of his love and kindness and acceptance onto you. But now this week, in contrast, Paul is saying that it's not the righteousness of God being revealed, but the wrath of God being revealed And the wrath of God, which we'll actually uh, see fleshed out more next week when John preaches, I'm giving that all to him. Uh, But this wrath of God that's being uh, revealed, this righteous displeasure of sin and against unrepentant sinners is being revealed against two things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. And ungodliness encompasses all of our sins against God. It is our vertical sins against the holy God, whereas unrighteousness encompasses our horizontal sins, our sins against each other. And because of these two things, Paul says that we have suppressed the truth. Look again at the end of verse 18. It says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now follow Paul's logic here. Because of the attitudes of our hearts, this ungodliness and unrighteousness in our heart, it makes them suppress or push down the truth about God. Now that word suppressor, that, that's significant. Paul is choosing his words carefully here because suppression is not the same as a lack of knowledge or, or ignorance here. Suppression means that the truth is actually inside of us, but we keep ourselves from acknowledging it. I've heard it explained uh, like if you were to ever go to a beach or a pool or something and would hold a beach ball underneath the water, right? the beach ball is going to try to make its way, going to try to come to the surface somehow, but you're going to keep pressing it down. That is suppression, and that's what sin does in the world in regards to the knowledge of God. Paul is saying that everyone at their deepest level knows who God is, but they suppress the truth so that it never comes to the surface. And so, how, do, how does Paul know this? How can he make this staggering claim that every single person knows the truth about God? Like, did he just line them all up and interview them? No, he actually makes this and grounds his claim in verse 19. Verse 19 says this, For what can be known about God is what? Ambiguous? No, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so, simply put, God is revealing himself or making himself known in creation. That creation exists primarily to point to the creator. That even just the beauty and the wonder of the world cries out that there is a creator. And not just a creator, but like a good and loving creator. And that's why the psalmist will say, consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, your, the skies display your craftsmanship. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge. And we know that today, right? In fact, think about it, this, like, like I, I love Colorado. It is by far the best state that I've ever lived in. Um, my wife and I are moving from East Lansing, Michigan. And so pretty much any city or state would be better than East Lansing, Michigan, but we love Colorado. We love the mountains. We've pretty much gone to the mountains every single weekend since moving here. And I know that Coloradans love the mountains. It's probably one of the main reasons why people are moving to the state. And yet, to this day, I've still never met the person like you cannot go to the top of the mountain, climb a 14 er overlooking all of this creation and think, I am awesome. Right? Like, no, nobody has ever thought that. If that is you, brother, get over yourself because you're not that good. Okay. Or like we can't go to the ocean and, and stand in the middle of the ocean because that would be impossible. We can't go to the ocean and stand like on the shores of the ocean and think, oh my gosh, I am so powerful. Like, I am so powerful, right? No. Why? Because a JV-level wave is going to knock you over like you're a toddler, okay? But you guys need to see, like, this mountain, the ocean, a sunrise, a sunset, the trees in the fall. You guys need to see there is no person in the history of the world that has not been met with the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God. This is what fancy theologians call general revelation. That the beauty and the splendor all around us, all of the created things in the world testify to the existence of an all-powerful maker and creator in God. And that's what Paul is saying here. That God's eternal power and his divine nature can be seen just by opening up your eyes. In fact, Tony Evans says it like this. That every single day that you wake up, Nature is preaching a sermon. That even though nature, even though this general revelation can't speak to us audibly, it is speaking to us. And it's like an outstretched finger pointing to the creator of the world. And and although this general revelation cannot tell us everything about God, like his love and his mercy and his kindness, it can tell us about his unimaginable greatness, his power and his intelligence. And because God has revealed himself, as Paul would say, clearly or plainly in creation, Paul actually makes a really interesting claim at the end of this section. Did you catch it? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And listen to this. So they are without excuse. Excuse. And so by far, one of the most common questions that I have gotten uh, working in ministry, working with college students is this question. Okay, Drake, like I understand the gospel, like Jesus has become real to me in the salt company. Like I get it, like he has saved me from my sins. But Drake, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? What about like the innocent people maybe in Africa or China or out on an island who have never had the opportunity to respond to God? What What, what happens to those people? I get this question all the time, and it's a good question. And I always reply in two ways. I say, number one, man, like it is absolutely tragic that a person may go their entire life and never hear about the greatest news in the entire world. That there is a Savior who sees them and who knows them and who loves them and who desires a relationship with them. You should go tell them about Jesus. You should give up your life and go tell them about Jesus. That's the first thing I say. But the second thing that I say... Is this innocent person who has never had the opportunity to respond to God, according to Romans 1, does not exist. And that's what Paul is saying here, that there isn't and has never been an innocent person in the world who has not had an opportunity to respond to God. And again, it's it's unbelievably sobering. Paul is laying out this claim that we are all guilty before a holy God. It's the bad news that nobody will be able to stand before God one day and say, you never gave me a chance. God, you never gave me a chance. Why? Because God's attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived by just seeing the world. Yet mankind has always chosen to suppress the truth of God. And verse 21 says that even though all of us know God, we did not honor him or give thanks to him. That's the bad news that Paul is laying out already. The spiritual MRI that he is showing us, that everyone has suppressed the truth about God, so they are without excuse. Having fun yet? Good, well, man, what an encouraging chapter in our Bible. Um, but if the suppression of the truth of God is one way that Paul shows us the bad news, our turning to idols is the other way that Paul shows us the bad news. Let's look at verse 22. Verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchange that's gonna be an important word, in exchange, the glory of the immortal God For images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so we've already seen earlier this idea of the great exchange. Christ's righteousness for our unrighteousness in the gospel. And here in this section we see why that had to happen. Because we exchanged, there's that word again. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal creatures. And this is what we now know as idolatry. And that's going to be a key idea that we're going to look at look, like going forward. But Paul has been leading up to this idea, and he's saying that we were made by God and for God, that we were made to give him glory and to express him gratitude, to see his beauty and celebrate it, to receive his love and give that love right back, to worship our creator. That's what we were made for. But the human story is one where we see rather than worship God in that way, we have worshiped the things that are made. Verse 25 will say it like this. We have worshiped the creation over the creator. It's a pattern that we've seen play out in the world ever since Genesis 3. We see it in the Bible. We see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we see it now. And so here's what you absolutely have to see today is that we were made to worship. We were made to worship. We see it in Romans 1, and we see it today. We were made to have our lives orbit around something bigger than us. And when you pull God out of the center, the human heart will always replace it with something else. You will move towards something and structure your life around something that shapes your priorities, and you say to it, you fill what I need. That's why one theologian says that our hearts are like idol-making factories, constantly churning out idols like a conveyor belt. Because our hearts are wired to worship. Our hearts gravitate towards something to structure our lives around. And if our lives are not saturated, if our hearts are not saturated with the love and truth of Jesus, something else is going to take its place. An idol of some sort will take its place. And so to to put it another way, maybe a helpful thing for you guys is this, is that an idol is simply anything on the throne of your heart. An idol is anything on the throne of your heart. And what's tough is that an idol, this thing on the throne of your heart is usually not a bad thing. Idols are usually good things that have become God things. That's what Paul is getting at when he tells the Romans that people have turned from him to worship images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. You see, for idols, it wasn't it wasn't just about this little stone statue. It wasn't about this piece of wood or this image or something. It wasn't like they were just walking by, saw a piece of wood, and said, That's a nice piece of wood. You are now my lord. No. Like that's not what that wasn't that wasn't it for them. You see, all of the all these idols were were the amplification and then the deification of the deepest desires of the human heart. That they wanted something to give them meaning and purpose and value and comfort. And if it's not God, my heart will turn to something else. If it's not the creator, my heart will look to the creation to fill me inside. And so for them, it wasn't about a stone. It wasn't about an image or a statue. It was about something to orbit your life around and find ultimate meaning and purpose. And when you start to understand that you can see that anything can become an idol. Anything can be a little g God in your life. And then when we start to grasp that, when we start to understand that, we realize that Paul isn't just talking to the Romans here. It's something that we need to hear as well, that the inclination of the human heart today is the same, to worship the creation over the creator. And to prove that, In our last little bit of time together, I want to actually walk through four of the primary idols that I think try to sit on the throne of our hearts today in 2023. And again, these things aren't bad. They can actually be really good things. But many of these things go from good things to God things. And we want to guard against that. And so let's look at them. Four idols that try to sit on the throne of our heart today. The first one is this. The idol of self the idol of self. The first kind of image that Paul mentions uh, in this text is images resembling man. And, And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the most threatening thing to replace God in our lives is the image that we see in the mirror every single day. We are naturally lovers of self. Like if we could just be a better version of ourselves, then we think to ourselves that all of our problems would just disappear. I mean, even if you look on Amazon right now, The top-selling books besides Harry Potter, which is great, and The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings are self-help books. Why is that the case? Because we live in a day and a time that prioritizes the self more than any other generation that has gone before us. We are so captivated by the inward self that if we could just be a better version of ourselves, fix us up a little bit, be a better version of who we are, then we can finally be happy. And so we say, man, I just need to be a little bit more attractive Right? Like, we may not bow down to this uh, statue and the goddess of beauty here in America, but in many ways we kind of do. Right? Like, we will do anything and everything to keep beauty on your side because it gives you value when you strut into a room knowing that all eyes are on you. Or maybe for you, you just say, man, let me just make some more money. Like, if I could just have a bigger car, a bigger house, a nicer family, if I could just have a six-pack of abs while I sit in my multi-million-dollar log cabin in Breckenridge, I'll have made it. I'll have made it. I'll feel, good about our, I'll feel good about myself. Like, anything to elevate ourselves and feel valued, then we'll feel like we have made it in life. And maybe, just maybe, that emptiness that we feel inside of us will finally go away. But for some of us, this idol of self might even play out in the form of success or achievement. This idea of you are what you do well. And so for some of you, man, you put a lot of weight on your uh, performance review for work. You will sacrifice time with friends and family if it means that you're going to get a leg up on your coworkers to set yourself up for that raise and promotion because that raise and promotion will mean more power and more influence. And if your reputation is going to be that crucial to you, you will always need the credit for success. And if anybody ever tried to criticize you, that was like an unforgivable sin because you need that recognition. You will do anything to get to the top, push others down, cheat, whatever you have to do, because to be at the top is to be somebody in life. And that's ultimately what you want because you want success. See, it's easy to take ourselves in our glory and have it be the greatest competitor with God for our hearts. It's easy to ascend the throne of our hearts instead of placing Jesus there. Jim Carrey said it like this, I'm quoting Jim Carrey in a sermon. How awesome is that? (laughs) But Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. The self will never satisfy, it wasn't designed to. But maybe that's not it for you. Maybe for you, the second one is the idol of others. The idol of others. And there is no better way to show the idols of others than in our culture of love, right? Like we are in love with love. We love the redemption and the story and the hope that love can bring. And if you don't believe me, we just have to look back to the movies that we watched in Disney growing up, okay? Cinderella, what is Cinderella saying? I need that man to come and rescue me, right? What is Snow White saying? I'm surrounded by a bunch of these little dudes who are cool. But I need a big dude to come and get me. That's what Snow White's saying. And guys, guys, we ain't off the hook, okay? Shrek, Princess and the Frog, Beauty and the Beast, what are these movies telling us? That we are ugly and we are incomplete and insecure people. We are terrible people until a beautiful girl comes and tells us that we are okay. And that's all that we want because if we can just get that girl and she will rescue me from feeling inadequate. But here's what those Disney movies don't tell you is that we aren't primary, primarily lonely people looking for a soulmate. We're primarily broken sinners in desperate need of a Savior. That lonely and insecure single people become lonely and insecure married people because that loneliness is not solved by another person. That loneliness is solved by having a relationship with God that is unmatched. And I also recognize that the idol of others is not just about dating and married relationships, but could also be uh, in the form of just having one friend that you want to go to and you want them to come to you and if you could just get in this circle of friends then you will have made it it could be your boss if he or she just looked at you and said you did a great job then you will finally feel validated for doing hard work finally get the recognition that you deserve I even know and I'm probably going to have to deal with this soon that the idol of others could even be your kids You've heard of helicopter parents, but I also think that there are bulldozer parents where you try to clear out everything in the way for your kids so that they can be successful because if they're successful, you're going to look successful and you're going to look good and you want to look like an amazing parent. You see, no matter who it is, here's what you should see. Is that the other person will always fail you if you look to them to save you or to fill you up or to say a certain thing in your life so that you finally feel uh, satisfactory and to erase that unsatisfactory feeling in your heart. Guys, don't crush the people around you by putting expectations on them that they cannot bear. They were not designed to save you. Only Jesus was. The third one, idol of the world. The third one is the idol of the world. There's so much that can be put in this place, but the idea is that we run to things that God created for us and for our enjoyment and good, but never meant to be on the throne of our hearts to satisfy all of our deepest longings. God made us with the capacity to enjoy life and food and drinks and to laugh and have so much fun and honor Him. But when these pleasures become the throne of your heart, you're just waiting for like the next high or the next weekend and you can't even enjoy life because you're so focused on what is coming next to feel better again. And a lot of it food, pornography, alcohol, a party it's just an escape. It's just an escape, an escape to feel in control or needed, but it never satisfy you. And so you're continuing to run back to it and run back to it. Created things are good as created things. Created things are not good as God's. They were never designed to be like that. And then the last one is the idol of religion. The idol of religion. Religion. You see, I struggle with every single idol mentioned, but this is the one that I have to fight for every single day and fight against every single day because it's so easy to make Christianity about what I do for God rather than about what Christ has done for me. And so if we think about it, this idol of religion is honestly just the idol of the self in a lot of ways. Because instead of Jesus being the one I look to for my approval and for my worth and for my validation, I'm going to look to my report card that I bring to Jesus every single week so that I can feel validated and worthy because of the things that I've done for God. And so if that's true for you, you may sing songs to Jesus, but your real value is in your own performance. You see, J.D. Greer has said that ministry and religion... It's a great place for people with the idol of success to hide because we can mask our selfish ambitions in the cloak of doing great things for God. Four different buckets, four different primary idols that I think that we run to here in 2023 to be on the throne of our hearts, self, others, the world, and religion. And so in light of those, let me just read verses 21 through 23 again. Romans 1, 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God for the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so remember the truth that I said earlier, that at our core, we are worshipers at heart, Like our hearts are wired to worship. And so when you pull God out of the center, something else is going to take its place. That was true for the people in Romans 1 and that is true for us today. And we can look all the way back to Genesis 3, the result of the fall that our relationship with God and with others are, is fractured. And see, the pattern of the world ever since Genesis 3 has been to to do exactly what Paul laid out in Romans 1, to suppress the truth of God and to turn to idols over God. And that's the bad news today. And it's weighty and it's sobering. And Paul is like the doctor that we all uh, hate going to because he is about to lay out the diagnosis and the bad news of our condition. But like I said earlier, it's only when you understand that you're sick... will will you fully understand that you need healing? You see, when, when we see the fullness of the bad news of our sin, we can fully see the good news of the cross. That on the cross, the righteousness of God and the wrath of God collided in the person of Jesus Christ. And so for anyone who accepts Jesus and who places their faith in him, the defining moment, the defining exchange in your life won't be the exchange of God for idols. The defining exchange in your life happened 2,000 years ago. On a cross where the wrath of God was poured on Jesus so that we could be made righteous with him. You see, Romans 1 tells us that it's creation, it's creation that can declare the glory and the power of God. But Romans 5 says that it is the cross that can display the love of God. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. The cross shows us, yes, God's holy. Yes, you're unrighteous, but God still chose to pursue you anyways. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Good news is good news when it invades dark spaces. And so Salt Church fully realize the bad news so that you can fully appreciate and live out the good news. Let me pray for us. Lord, and even just reading this passage, there is something inside of me that tempts me to despair, tempts me to not trust you, tempts me to believe the lie that I have run too far away from you, that I have gone too far, that I have fallen too hard, that there's no way that you would ever accept me. Romans 1 is the absolute bad news of the gospel. And yet, Lord, I pray that it would be a backdrop, that it would be like a dark sky so that we can see the beauty of Christ, so we can see the stars, we can see the goodness of the good news. Lord, would you look beautiful today on the backdrop of the bad news that we could never run so far away from God that you can't catch us and that we can never run so far or never fall so hard that you can't can't catch us either. Lord, you are good, you're beautiful, and even the cross shows us that while we were sinners, you chose to pursue us, that yes, you are holy, yes, we are unrighteous, but you chose to pursue us anyways. And the cross proves that. And so I don't know how people in here are feeling this morning, but I pray that despair could go away because of the good news of the gospel. That conviction, sure, but would that even conviction lead us to the, to the cross? Would it lead us to the throne room of God so that we can worship and celebrate you and give honor and glory to you like we were designed and we were made to be? Lord, you are good and beautiful. Would you be glorified in the space? Would the bad news sink in so that we can fully realize the good news? Lord, we love you and we trust you. In your name we pray, amen.